Welcome to Investment Magazine's new podcast series entitled The Future of Super, an in-depth series of conversations with key decision makers, leaders, agitators, and stakeholders in policy, regulation, and from within the industry. At a time when the superannuation system is being asked important questions about its purpose, efficiency, and ability to deliver appropriate member outcomes. We will be exploring topics vital to those responsible for governance, operations, and investment outcomes of funds through this series of conversational style interviews. Please visit investmentmagazine.com.au or get in touch to join the conversation. And now, please enjoy this episode. AIA Australia is a leading life and wellbeing specialist with nearly 50 years experience and a commitment to help Australians live healthier, longer, better lives. Visit aia.com.au to find out more. This episode of The Future of Super is entitled Trustees in the Age of Accountability. During the conversation, I'll be looking to explore some of the changes coming through relating to the accountability of individuals responsible for the custodianship of Australians' retirement savings and the impact these changes are having on trustee boards and fund structures, as well as the shape of the superannuation industry more broadly. I'd like to spend a bit of time considering implications of some of the recent regulatory actions as well, with a view to what this means for the future state. I'm Matthew Smith, and I'm Managing Editor at Investment Magazine, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Scott Donald, Director of the Centre for Law, Markets and Regulation at UNSW Law at UNSW, and Damian Murphy, who is a consultant to trustees at Credus Solutions, and previously a former risk officer advising the trustee board at National Australia Bank Group of Companies. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon, Matt. Good afternoon, Matt. So much to talk about here in this area. Really interested in um, starting with you, Scott. Uh, you know, I want to get a, a bit of a behind behind the scenes of some of these new laws designed to prevent superannuation trustees from using member funds to pay penalties. I know you've been following this area closely. So where has this come from and what impact do you think this might have on the industry fund trustee structures? Okay, so Matt, yes, we've, I mean... We're- there seem to be a continuous stream of, uh, of changes to the superannuation regulations and the, and the law. Um, and, it's, and it's been going on now for, for a very long time, as long as I can remember anyway. Um, around about 18 months ago, the, um, the government passed some, some laws basically amending or making clearer um, that trustees who were subject to particular types of penalties or sanctions would not be able to use fund assets to meet those. They had to meet them out of their own um, their own resources. Now, of course, if you were a, a retail fund, a fund offer, offered by a, um, a bank or another financial institution, um, you could turn to your shareholder and ask for assistance to, to, to pay that. But if you were an industry fund, um, as one of the funds that's a not-for-profit model, more of a mutual model, um, there's a real question as to where you'd actually be able to draw that money from. You couldn't use reserves anymore. You couldn't use fund assets anymore. Um, and so, uh, as I say, about 18 months ago, uh, that provision came in and, it was, and there was a strong push to have the, um, the date of it delayed so that we, would, um, we wouldn't actually, we'd give funds a chance to adjust their organizational structures and so on, such that they would be able to um, to, to meet any claims that, that did come up. Look, I think it's really interesting because we can view that in, in isolation and say, well, yes, of course, 
if you're subject to some kind of criminal penalty or something, you shouldn't be able to t- turn to the fund assets and use that as a trustee. Mm. Um, but I think if we see this in a broader perspective, a longer-term perspective, what we can see is been a gradual tightening up, both recently but even, even before the Royal Commission, where over the last couple of decades, we've started to try to really ensure that the people who are making these key decisions for superannuation funds are held accountable for the decisions that they make. Mm. That's not to say they have to in, act as some kind of insurance and if, if anything goes wrong, then it's clearly a fault. But there are things that we are entitled to expect that superannuation trustees and their directors will do. And if they don't, then they should be held accountable for it in a, in a very practical way. So I think although we can focus on these recent changes and try to understand what they're, what they're about, I think they form part of that, that, that trend, if you like, towards intensification, more enforcement and so on. That's really important. Yeah. And, and I know we'll get into this a little bit further, but it seems to me that some regulatory action seems to have materialised right around the same time. So there seemed to not be very much um, regulatory action against profit for member funds. And then, you know, more recently, it seems like some of those actions have begun to materialise. Oh, look, I think I think we need to be careful about, about this. The, the regulators interact... Um, in a variety of ways with the um, with entities, and we mm-hmm. saw this. It was reported quite carefully in the in the Royal Commission. Um, the regulators have a preference for trying, particularly in the superannuation sector, where you've got so many people who are members of, of, of funds. They try to maintain confidence in the sector. So if they can sort out a problem behind closed doors right. and not draw attention to it, and you know cause an erosion of confidence in the system, they'll take that option. They will tr- they'll try to do that. What the Royal Commission showed us was, yeah, but if if you, if you never take anybody to court, if you never um, really uh, go for harsh sanctions, then the industry can get a bit complacent and, 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 and trust that it will never really be held to account. And so we have seen over the last few years uh, an increased determination from ASIC and from APRA to be a little bit more visible in what they're doing mm. um, and to take more transparent types of, uh, of action. Yeah, and, like and court cases. Yeah, and Damien, um, your experience has mostly been within the retail sector funds, and certainly there's probably more high-profile cases to to talk about. Do you feel like there's been more? There's certainly been more visibility of, of retail funds in the sights of of regulators than than certainly the the profit for member funds. I think that's right. Um, and then I think you've got to ask yourself why and how did that come about. I think the the retail funds um, very very clearly deal with a different set of interests, and the management of those conflicts of interest was drawn out in the Royal Commission. Mm. I think there are also conflicts, but they're different inside the industry fund context, mm. and I don't think those conflicts and the way they manifest have been drawn out recently. That said, I agree with everything that Scott said. We are seeing this increased push to accountability, increased professionalisation across the sector. And my expectation is that we will see and continue to see improvements in, in, in governance and improvements in results across the sector. Yeah. And can you take us a little bit of, you know, in your experience within these trustee boards, what that perhaps could mean? Trustee boards are very sensitive to the regulators in my experience. Um, they, they listen very carefully. They try to meet regulatory expectations expectations can change over time. We have seen changed behaviour from the regulators. And I think, you know, that's, that's the play itself all the way out. You know, we're still on the journey journey there. Uh, the, the memories and the, the scarring of the Royal Commission, um, you know, continues. Um, I would say, um, in my experience, directors have 
are very careful, they are very sensitive, they take more advice and, you know, albeit they might even be a little bit more conservative. Scott, what are the recent actions against industry funds in particular? We've got recently the Host Plus and State Plus Super uh, say about the regulator's appetite for bringing actions against funds that might not have traditionally had the balance sheet to, to pay fines and remediation. Look, I'm not, I'm not really sure how much it does say. I mean, I think that there, there have been issues in the industry fund movement uh, in the past mm. um, where, you know, there's been, uh, we, don't, we don't need to name them, but there's been a, there's been a, a series of, uh, of issues and, and many of those have been dealt with in, a, in, you know, relatively constructive ways to try to um, change the governance of, of a couple of organisations and to, and to stop certain practices in terms of confidentiality of information and so on. So I think there's been there has been regulatory action in the past. What we're looking at um, in a couple of cases here is obviously a much more transparent to us anyway from the outside um, set of um, initiatives that, that have been taken. And it's going to be very interesting to see how far those in fact go and and how successful um, the regulators are in taking taking the cases to court. Um, in the superannuation sector, the the regulators have not traditionally been very successful. There's a it's, it's, it's unfortunately a bit, been a bit of a graveyard for, um, for litigation and mm. whether that was um, the AXA matter many, many years ago or IOOF more recently. Um, and that's because often the rules around superannuation and its governance are quite intricate. And uh, finding your way through those in a way that really sheets home accountability directly to any one party or to any organisation can be can be extremely difficult, even even when from a, an outsider's perspective the case seems reasonably clear cut. Um, that said, clearly ASIC has committed over the last couple of years to, to try to increase its capacity on enforcement and court enforcement, um, and I think in other areas anyway it's been it's been quite successful over over the last few years. So it'll be interesting to see what happens, see how, how they go. My concern is APRA continues to tell the story that they're not an enforcement regulator. Um, they, they still um, don't seem to fully embrace the idea that if they don't have the kind of option of going to, the court, going to court and prosecuting that way, that the, you know, if they don't have that, then the threat's less. They don't seem to kind of get that yet. And that worries me a little bit because if, they, if they're not thinking that that's a possibility, then it's going to infect and, and affect all of their... Um, the way in which they do their business. So they won't be collecting the information they need to collect. They won't be establishing the various kind of processes that they need, which when they go to court, um, they're going to need to be able to call on. And that's really what happened in IWF to a large extent. The court was very critical, um, not, of the, not of the kind of substance of the case they were trying to argue, but of the fact that they couldn't demonstrate a lot of the things that they um, were claiming because they didn't have the record-keeping process and processes to, to do it. So I think... Until APRA really gets its head around and its heart in the in the game there to really collect information with a view that at some point it may be possible, it may be required to go to court to, to enforce something, I just think they're going to struggle. And whilst they struggle, and, and so you know, it's all very well to be announcing that um, that you're going to take people to court or you're going to, you're going to hold people accountable. But if you actually ultimately don't have the capacity internally to to deliver on that promise. Mm. Um, you're gonna, we're going to see disappointment after disappointment. I've got a bit of a different sort of spin on it mm. uh, to Scott. Um, I have seen an uplift in enforcement action around, you know, enforceable undertakings, that sort of regulatory action, directions. There is a, there is a lot of that and a lot of the funds have actually experienced that. That's my first point. My second point is that um, 
Courts aren't the focus in this sense. The focus is on the impact to the individuals who are involved in enterprises that are subject and brought into disrepute by the regulator. A lot of the public relations impact is, is, is felt intensely by directors. Um, I, think, I think the threat of enforcement, public enforcement, has, I have, I, I, I'm aware has had you know, some dramatic impact on, on, on actions and decisions by directors. So I'm not as strong a, a fan of court action, but I am seeing an uplift in enforcement activity of other forms. I think I'd agree with Damien. There's, there's, there's certainly, we need to recognise that um, getting the, if you like, the heads on sticks after the after the court action is not is not actually um, the full game. There's a there's a there's a tremendous amount of signalling that goes on, um, both in threatening court action against a particular party for some alleged breach, both for the individuals involved in that, but also for the industry as a whole. Everybody knows. Everybody's watching, and so if there is a if there is a um, an action taken against one fund for for a particular um, type of conduct or a particular position, um, you can rest assured that all the other funds are watching and learning from that as well. And so we need to, I think, have a slightly more nuanced and sophisticated understanding of what's going on in this regulatory space. I mean, Demi talks, I think, quite rightly about the use of enforceable undertakings, other kinds of um, of consequences that can flow from regulatory action, which can be quite important. Um, we just need to be sure that we're actually doing so in a way I think that's even-handed, and that's part of what's uh, uh, what's I think aimed at with this with this reform. There was a sense in which sometimes the regulators would say, "Well, it's a mutual. What's the point of uh, pursuing the mutual because it's just members' money that's going to get paid out, and that's not really helping the members any." Mm. Um, well, I think that's changing. I think this is designed to try to have those uh, those entities um, create structures, whether that's holding capital or taking out insurance, whatever that enables them to, to meet any claims just as they would if they as if they were in, in um, a for-profit organization on the retail side. Um, and I think that I think that's actually really, really important. We need we need these boards who are, which are becoming some of the most important corporate structures in the country to be accountable and to feel accountable for the decisions that they're taking. I think they I think at one level they do, but I think Damien's right. I think as the Dial gets dialed up a little bit in terms of intensity of focus and transparency. So, um, I think I think they are taking the job more seriously. They are thinking more carefully about issues like conflicts, issues like um, the duty to monitor what's going on and how closely they have to monitor things. And so, their preparedness to take um, risks around those sorts of things are actually, I think, is 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 dropping away, which is which I think is probably right. That's, that, that's what we would expect of them. Yeah. So, so what are what are some of the steps that funds are taking now to address uh, the new rules, and is that changing the nature of the structure in itself? Well, look, a lot of the retail funds moved quite quickly um, over the last, you know, about about five years ago to to have another look at their in their boards. There was a sense in which a lot of executives working on on trustee boards, the executives. Um, although they they entered the trustee room, feel you know, intending to act independently and, and and doing their best to do that, there was always this suggestion: "Well, hang on, you're employed by the group, and that makes it difficult." And so there's been quite a strong push in the retail space for towards um, specialist board members who are um, independent. They're not employed by the group in in any particular as, as executives. Um, they are there to, to perform that board role, 
and that's been very helpful. I think. I mean, it, it's 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 brought a, it's brought a real distinction between governance and management into those structures, and I think I think that work, that's worked very well. On the industry fund side, we still have that nomination process. Um, whereby the nominating bodies, the employer groups, and the and the unions can nominate people to the board. If you, if you were to, you would, wouldn't have to go too far back. Only only a couple of decades, and you'd find examples where that was really was a jobs for the boys type of a process, or jobs for the girls in some in some in some funds. That's become also much more sophisticated. We're seeing people coming to the being appointed to the boards who have um, not just a passion for the role that they're playing, but also expertise and relevant expertise. And a commitment to get to continuing to be, tra- be trained. But what we've seen in the last six months is that that side of the industry has really picked up the ball in terms of looking very carefully at things like what types of um, indemnity insurance are they carrying? What are they, what's covered by the indemnity insurance? What kind of processes do they need to have in place around the management of their reserves? How might they think about uh, what sorts of risks come up and, 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 and how best to address those? I'm not suggesting for a second that there's a, there's a magic bullet to any of that, and I don't think that any of the funds have really fully gone down that path. I mean, it's a work in progress, and it will continue over the next next few months. But but they have responded to that change in the law. They have they, they they have taken it seriously. They they are thinking very carefully about the business model that they're going to need in by the end of the year and, and, and beyond. And I think we'll see possibly one or two different types of business model come out of that, which will be which will be really interesting to see. Um, and see how, see how well they work. At AIA, our dream is to champion Australia to be the healthiest and best protected nation in the world. To achieve this, we are continuously innovating to develop and deliver customer-led life, health and well-being propositions that help people live healthier, longer, better lives. To find out more, visit aia.com.au. Scott just mentioned um, there a little bit about um, the directors um, within the retail funds. Have you seen that shift? And also um, a, a further question, Damien, do you feel that um, it could get more and more challenging to attract directors to these boards considering there might be more um, more risks for them to in, in doing so? Yes, yeah, so the short answer is yes. Um, I have seen um, um, very significant changes in the approach of directors and the approach towards selection of directors, particularly inside trustee companies. Um, in the not so you know, recent past, a lot of these superannuation retail uh, companies were subsidiaries of insurance companies. And they've very recently been subsidiaries of, of banks. Now, where you're sustained by a large enterprise that's putting you um, in those positions and you have very deep pockets, I mean, I think that that's a factor. That is that 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 we've seen come to play, but you know the the superannuation entities inside banks are being sold. Uh, the banks, as a mass, are exiting the industry, and these are some of the biggest pockets in the country. So I think there's an element of stability inside the retail funds, which is which is interesting to to watch, particularly in terms of ownership structures. Now those tensions, um, I think, are exist in the industry funds, um, and. I think the, the nature of the exposure of trustee directors, superannuation trustee directors, is it, I don't think it's fully appreciated. I don't think the ambiguities, the complexity, some of the, some of the sharp bits aren't fully, fully appreciated. Directors are examining the DNO insurance. They are examining the deeds of indemnity and you know, access to records. 
these are things that are increasingly coming to the fore. And I, and I am concerned that we do attract to these boards the highest calibre people. Some of these institutions are enormous in size mm. and they are some of the most powerful and influential institutions in our, in our country. And we need our very best people um, at the helm of those organisations. I just wanted to go back for something you were mentioning before, Scott, about the trustee structures. I mean, it sounds to me that there's all these different areas that the trustees are um, finding different ways to change their structures to adjust to the new rules. Could that mean that the traditional kind of profit for member structure that, you know, doesn't have a balance sheet that, um, you know, only has a very, very small operational risk reserve could be a thing of the past? I mean, could, could that structure be, you know, under threat? Well, I think um, it's it's pretty obvious at this point that there'll be an evolution in that structure. Mm. These are enormous organisations. These are organisations that serve sometimes upwards of, you know, a million, sometimes two million Australians so, and, and have hundreds of billions of dollars in, in under um, the supervision. So I don't, they're not going to go away. Um, I don't think we should ought to wish them away, frankly. I think that they play a really important part in the overall health of the of, of the system. Um, but what will certainly happen is that they are evolving some of the the internal um, structures that they have to to accommodate this uh, this heightened need to make sure that there is accountability. Um, so I suspect that we will see um, the the way the not-for-profit sector organizes itself changing slightly. Will that still mean that they can call themselves not-for-profit? Well, I, th- I think that's a communications exercise. To some extent, they are they are still not-for-profit, even if they are de- deriving a, um, a fee to cover the insurance that they're going to be taking out or to cover the risks that they're, that they're taking on. Um, it's not it's not quite the same as it was 12 months ago, but it's, um, it'll be interesting to see how they craft a message around that that makes it clear what's actually happening. Mm. Um and, and and to a large extent, it's actually it's it's in members' interest that that does happen. Um, it, it, the, the clarity and transparency that this uh, this brings, I think, is, um, is is a good thing. How are you seeing the professionalism in industry funds grow? I, there are a number of ways in which on which the professionalism is increasing. We've seen um, we've seen a lot more internalisation of asset management, and the argument for that is well, we're cheaper than if we outsource it. But interestingly, the performance is good. So that's, that, that's been very interesting. And you're seeing that the previously a lot of industry funds pulled their asset management, investment management skills into one place. They're now separating and they're running their own shops to a greater degree, which is good to see. But, but with that comes an increased focus on your systems and skills in monitoring your investments and your reporting and your oversight. Very, very important. The second place where I'm seeing it, and this is more, I think, in response to some of the recent pressures, Scott, that you're talking about, this regulatory enforcement, this intensity, this awareness of their obligations. I'm seeing um, a lot more risk uh, professionals join industry funds. So we're seeing a bit of an exodus out of some of the banks and other financial institutions hmm. into the industry funds. Hmm. Um, and I think this has been a great focus for APRA. I think APRA is right over these funds, having a look at show me your risk frameworks, Show me your risk professionals that you're on the ground doing the job and delivering into, you know, our expectations. Is it fair to say that um, some of the reserves that are retained by the funds, I mean, we've seen from the IWF case, surely that funds can't, you know, use members, member reserves to fund, you know, actions that might result in, you know, penalties or remediation. How else can, can these funds 
create a buffer or some kind of capital protection against some of these actions? Well, it, that's interesting. It's I think one of the um, perhaps unintended byproducts, but or maybe it was intended, but but just not quite so advertised, is that we will see much more attention on how funds use their reserves. And of course, trustees are entitled to maintain reserves within a fund. But what's interesting about about that is they have to do so for a very clearly articulated purpose. They can't just hmm. have um, hollow logs built in built into the funds. They, they they must be clear about what those monies are there reserved for. And so um, I think that and that will that will be very useful because what that will do is it will uh, make it very clear to um, to directors that they that they can't draw on a general reserve or an operational risk reserve. Um, to make to meet various claims, unless that's within the purpose of that, you know, within that stated purpose of that reserve, because and and here's the kicker, of course, because if they do misuse the reserves, then they have the whole weight of the new accountability regime wearing bearing down on them, because not only may they have breached the first time, but they may have breached again by misusing the reserves in satisfying the breach. So I think the um, the the and the penny has dropped amongst the amongst the better trustees that this is you know. That they're going to have to really tighten up their processes around how uh, amounts are allocated to reserves and how the, and how um, the reserves are then employed across the administration of the trust, and not simply assume that oh well if we have a claim against us we can use the reserve and then work it all out. I think I, I don't think that's going to fly in the future. Um, it'd be a question to see whether um, APRA is really up to reviewing that carefully. They ought to have been doing it for a long time, I think, but um, but it's certainly it's now it's now very much front and center. I see you nodding there, Damien. What um, are trustees really across um, some of the use of of reserves, and uh, how do you see that evolving? Well, actually, um, an interesting point to begin with. Um, when the operational risk financial reserve requirements were put in place, um, in the retail funds, they were funded by the main by the shareholder. And, of course, in contradistinction, that wasn't happening in the industry funds. And there were questions then about level playing field and all and all the rest. The second question then came, okay, in terms of how you use your RRFR, what is paid when and by whom? So often in, a, often in an issue, you'll have an insurance claim, you'll have a claim against a counterparty. Do you fund it out of your reserve while you wait to recover the funds? How do you do it? And it was very interesting, you know, they, they were very, very carefully thought through procedures. Similarly, the movement of the operational risk reserves when funds merge or people leave or there are, they're, they're split. These are issues that are, are ongoing, particularly in having regard to the different ways in which those funds were derived. Um, so I, final point, um, APRA's very keen on seeing, you know, operational risks remediated through the reserves so they get a feel for your point, Scott, data. Data around the operational risk events, what the profile is, so they can see the ins and outs associated with with, with those events. And, I, and I'm not sure that it has, in fact, achieved that purpose. And, and interestingly, that's one of the um, data points that isn't available to the public. So if you have a look at the financial reporting that's required of, um, of funds, increasingly they're being re required to report all, sort, all, all manner of things. But one of the things that hasn't come up as yet is movements in the reserves. They, they, they have to report the net movement. But if a fund has got a million dollars more in a reserve 
this year than last year. That doesn't tell you whether they actually had to pay out three hundred million dollars and they've had, but they've put two ninety nine back in, or whether they've had just a movement of you know two dollars out and one dollar in. So uh, two million out, one one million in. So um, and that that I would think is actually one of one of the things that I would want to know as a member. I would want to know if my trustee was regularly incurring a lot of um, regulatory sanctions or other sorts of things. That that in fact, probably even more than the performance, I'd actually probably be quite interested in that in that um, information. And it's not really it's not provided at the moment. There's no requirement to do it, and I'm not aware of any funds that do. Um, but I, w- I wonder how long it will be before we actually start to see a little bit more transparency around those sorts of matters. Because I think um, if we think about the salient information that a, that a member really needs to know in order to be able to feel comfortable that their monies are being looked after properly. That seems to me to be at least on the list. It would certainly be on the on the front page of the list. Um, there'd be other things that might fall below it, and there might be a few things that might be above it. But um, that seems to, I would thought that was actually pretty important. Yeah, look, it's been a fascinating conversation. I, I just wanted to spend our last few minutes um, thinking about what the future in, say, three to five years' time might look like in relation to the, the super fund trustee structure. Seems to me you know, we're at a little bit of a perhaps a possible fork in the road. Currently, there's there are two very obvious structures. Some of the changes that seem to be coming through appear to be wanting those structures to come closer together. I've been interested in both your views on on where, where are we going to find ourselves in a few years' time if um, what do you see this, this, this structure evolving into? Well, I think you're right, Matt. Hmm. I think you will see some convergence. Now, I think... The retail funds, because of the presence of the shareholder as a stakeholder, have had to manage their conflicts of interest very carefully. And we've seen liability sheeted home to the shareholder. And the shareholder is often the service provider. The shareholder is the capital provider. The shareholder is often the provider of the staff. Hmm? Now, what we've seen is that effectively, you know, we we often talk about the two capacities, the, the, the trustee capacity and the personal capacity. And very often it's been the personal capacity that's had to fill in and and hold the fund harmless, members harmless. Now, what we're now seeing is that whereas previously the industry funds will have had more movement, there's no shareholder to go to, there's more movement between members in terms of entitlements and and the the cover for losses from insurers or, or third party providers, those issues will come more and more to the fore. And they come more to the full because the trustee will have accountability for oversight, the accountability of making sure that these things work, that losses and problems don't occur. And we'll see an increase in accountability, increase in liability for the boards, increase for the entities in terms of exposures. And that's when the point of similarity will emerge. They will require, I think, additional structure. They'll require additional capital. They'll require additional insurance. And they require additional processes to manage very clearly that pattern of relationships in which they exist now. Hmm. And Scott, your view: How do you see the structures evolving from here? Well, I think I, I, I agree with, uh, with what Damien said. There is, I think, there will be a convergence. But one of the things that, that strikes me is that the the paradigm of trustee and fund and so on that, that the CIS Act and the regulations and APRA's approach really seems to key off. Um, is a very old one. 
we, ever since we've had managed you know, investment choice and now we've got wraps, we've got master trusts, we've got all manner of, 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 of variations and, and twists on the theme. It seems to me that um, I, I, I wonder how long we can continue just trying to pretend that all trustees are more or less the same because there's a very big difference depending on exactly what your product set is, whether you're offering advice as well as just um, uh, trusteeship, uh, whether you're doing internal investment management or not. And, it, and the, but the assumption of the CIS Act is that, well, we've got one set of covenants that applies to directors, one set applies to the, to the trustee. There is a difference for self-managed super funds, but, but I, I think that we do need to recognize that the industry isn't just made up of, um, you know, industry funds with a big my super product and retail funds with lots of choice products. Actually, uh, underneath that, there's actually quite a lot of complexity and there are industry funds that, that look in terms of operational structure and, and product set very similar to some retail funds. Um, there are some industry funds that are very much simpler, much more the old kind of paradigm. And then you have some, some players, some disruptive players out there who are doing all, all manner of things quite, di- quite differently. And then I haven't even re- haven't even raised the issue of the fintech players who are starting to come in and try to mm. disrupt as well. Um, and so I I I do one I, I do think we need to be careful when we talk about the superannuation industry and and we think just of you know the big industry funds mm. and a couple and a couple of the big uh, well they were formerly bank owned but you know the big retail players. I actually think there's a lot that's actually a lot more complex than that and. You start to see things like the your uh, your future your super regulations coming in, and you go, that's all very well. That applies to that paradigm, but what about all these other players out there, which now are incre- you know they're they're increasingly relevant. And to the extent that the regulation of the paradigm becomes even more intense, it just pushes more people out into those um, into those different structures as they try as they try to find other ways to operate that, that relieve themselves a little bit of that regulatory burden. Hmm. So I think I think it's I think it's going to be really interesting to see. What happens? Clearly, we're going to have a small number of very, very large funds, um, but then I think we're going to have a whole bunch of new or further developed um, business models in and around that, where the standard paradigm of regulation just doesn't work very well, uh, and deliberately so. That's why that's why those that's why those players have gone there is to try to, to find ways through the, the regulatory structure. It's uh, been a fascinating conversation. I, um, I'd like to thank both uh, Scott and Damien for your time. Pleasure. <laughs>